Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 36, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we'll be looking at the 11th storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper strip, which is part two of the Europe at War trilogy that we kicked off back in episode 32. Also, later on in the episode, I will present a spotlight on artist Dennis Neville. I've got no emails or other feedback to read and no real news to share this time out, so we will just get right into the story momentarily. Before that, though, I want to remind you once again that for the rest of the month, the show is bi-weekly, which is allowing me to make up the episodes I missed over the summer. I really hope you've been enjoying the double dose of the show. It's been a lot of work, but... I'm looking forward to the show being back on track. In any event, don't forget to check back both Tuesdays and Fridays this month, however you get the show, be it uh, via iTunes or the RSS feed or the Superman Podcast Network. However it is, be sure to check back so that you don't miss the extra episodes. Take the mightiest superheroes on Earth. Each an invincible champion of justice. Band them together in a common cause against crime and evil. And you have the The Justice Justice League of America. And now their adventures are being chronicled on the Podcast of Justice. A bi-weekly podcast covering every issue of the Justice League from the Silver Age to today. Join hosts Charlie Niemeyer and Isaac Frisbee at podcastofjustice.blogspot.com The 11th storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip was 28 strips long, comprising strips 307 to 334 of the serial, and it ran from January 8th to February 8th, 1940. That puts it running concurrently with the most recent Sunday storyline, as well as the publication of Action Comics number 22, both of which were covered in the most recent episodes of the show. Also of note, the Superman radio show began on February 12, 1940, just four days after the final strip we are going to be looking at this episode. I also want to point out that this is the first storyline to end midweek, though as I mentioned with the last storyline, it, this, and the next work as one big story, and the ending to this one is even more abrupt than the last, so take all that for what you will. In any event, it was written by Jerry Siegel, The Grand Comics Database credits pencils to Dennis Neville with Joe Shuster Superman figures and inking by Dennis Neville and Paul Loretta. So once again, we've got many cooks in the kitchen here. Our story has been titled Clark Kent, Spy, and it picks up right where we left off last time. As you might recall, last time, Superman saved a town from floodwaters resulting from a sabotaged dam. While trying to unravel the mystery of how Ajax News knew of the dam's explosion before it happened, 
Superman latched onto a plot by foreign agents who had polluted the town reservoir. Superman's warning prevented the reservoir from being opened and the poison floodwaters from channeling into the city. And as we open here, Superman, returning from his excursion to the reservoir, lands back on the roof of the Daily Planet. Slipping back into the newsroom is Clark Kent. The editor demands to know where he's been. Clark says he was out for a walk and got on a hot story before heading off to type it up. A bit later, the editor is again trying to find Clark, but an office boy says he's again disappeared, leading the editor to fume that his best reporter keeps vanishing while the biggest story in years, i.e. the outbreak of war in Europe, is sitting in their laps. However, unbeknownst to the editor, Clark is on the story of the war, having headed back to Ajax News to get to the bottom of their stunts from last story. Clark enters the Ajax office in a silhouetted panel very reminiscent of some of the shots we're going to see in the Fleischer cartoon in a couple years, and speaks to the two men from the last storyline, the ones who were yelling at Gigi. Clark tells the men he understands that they've been having trouble getting their news releases out, and that since he works for the Daily Planet, he might be able to help them out. The two men, who we learn over the course of the story, are named Ratoff and Nicole, excuse themselves to discuss the matter. They decide to put into play tactic F-21, and Nicole returns to the room. Nicole tells Clark that he thinks they can work together, and as he's slipping on a pair of gloves, Ratoff enters with another man. Suddenly, Nicole pulls a gun. As Clark cowers, Nicole shoots the third man dead, then puts the gun into the hand of a very stunned Clark. Wanting no part in the murder, Clark says he wants out, but Nicole tells him no one would believe his story, since it's his fingerprints that are on the gun. He then goes on to say that unless Clark agrees to work with them, they will turn him over as the man's killer. Not wanting to take the rap, Clark agrees. He also thinks to himself that he knows the, mur the man's murder was faked, and we get Nicole's thoughts as well as he relishes in the fact that they tricked Clark. And I'm not sure why Siegel opted to go that route in faking the man's death. It seems it would have been just as effective, if not more so, to have them actually kill the guy. But I guess it works either way. So anyway, Clark agrees to work with the crooks, and they tell him to leave and wait for his orders. Clark exits the office, but sticks around outside using his super hearing to listen to their conversation. Radoff congratulates his partner on tricking Clark, and soon the two men leave for a murderous rendezvous with a Senator Jaeger. As the two drive away in a car, Clark, now as Superman, follows quickly behind. Arriving at Jaeger's home, Radoff tosses a slip of paper inside the house, and then, unbeknownst to the Senator, aims a gun at the politician's head and fires. Proving once again that he is truly faster than a speeding bullet, Superman grabs the gun from Radoff, then hurls it at the bullet, knocking it off course. While avoiding a very surprised senator's questions, Superman grabs both the slip of paper and Radoff and leaps off into the night. Looking at the paper, Superman demands to know why Radoff planned to leave a note written in the Rutland language at the scene. Radoff refuses to talk, so slamming into the ground, Superman says he has ways of getting information. He then suggests that they play a game, and throws Radoff like a football, several several yards through the air. Dashing to the other side of the tree line, Superman catches the crook before he goes splat. Radoff begs Superman not to do it again, and Superman says all Radoff need do is tell him what he wants to know. But Radoff, being superstitious and cowardly as criminals are wont to be, breaks off in a run and soon scurries up into a tree. 
When Radolf refuses to come down, Superman responds by clutching the trunk of the tree and uprooting the tree as Radolf furiously clings to its branches. Superman carries the tree to the edge of a high cliff, dangling Radolf over the edge and demanding that he talk or face a long fall. Radolf says he doesn't believe Superman would actually let him drop, but as Superman continues to shake the tree and Radolf's grip loosens, the crook quickly changes his mind and agrees to talk. Superman flips the tree backwards, catapulting Radolf into the air. He then tosses the tree to the side and catches Radolf one-handed, setting him on, setting him on the ground and demanding that he spill his guts. Radolf reveals that the country of Blitzen had planned to invade Rutland, but before doing so, Blitzen sent Radolf and his group of spies to the United States to commit acts of sabotage and terrorism. Their hope was to frame Rutland for the acts, thereby causing the U.S. to side with Blitzen in the war. Suddenly, Radolf lunges forward, using a momentary lapse in Superman's attention to his advantage, and shoves Superman off the cliff. As Superman plummets downward, Radolf watches over the edge, eager to see Superman's demise, but in his exuberance, Radolf slips, falling off the cliff himself. Superman lands safely and turns, just in time to see Radolf crashing on the ground behind him. Checking the body, he discovers the fall has killed Radolf, but sheds no tears, saying, the world will not suffer in his absence. Heading back to town, Superman arrives at Clark's apartment, and while switching back to his guise as everyone's favorite mild-mannered reporter, considers going after the spies personally, but he opts to trick them into exposing themselves and catching them red-handed in their shenanigans. Returning to work, Clark finds the offices to be in a frenzy. Lois Lane tells him the sentiment towards Rutland is turning negative because of the various sabotages. Meanwhile, a news flash comes in that the SS Lincoln has been torpedoed, leaving 500 dead and scores more hurt. An intercepted radio message pins the blame on Rutland, and Clark and Lois worry that the attack could mean the U.S. will become involved in the war. Clark gets a phone call from Nicole, demanding his presence for an important meeting. Shortly, Clark arrives back at the Ajax news offices and meets with Nicole and Gigi, who neither one ever for the rest of the story make mention of, hey, Where's Radoff? Remember him, our partner? We haven't seen him in a while. Maybe we should be concerned. But nonetheless, Nicole shows Clark how they have taken photos of various coastal areas. The plan is to blow up a fault line, thus causing the entire west coast to sink into the ocean, thereby raising the property value of worthless desert land. Oh, oh no, that's not right. He does show him some photos of the coast, though. Uh, for what purpose, we're never really told. But Nicole then goes on to explain their plan. Clark and Gigi are to go to Clinton Airplane Factory and steal plans for the new high-tech fighting plane, while at the same time, Nicole and a group of other spies will destroy the Del Mar munitions plant. Clark asks why they are involving him in the various sabotages and thefts, and Nicole tells him that he, in his role as a reporter, is to publicize them as acts of Rutland and apparently participate in the sabotages, further implicating him, as if murder wasn't enough. As Gigi and Clark go to the factory, Gigi warns Clark that he's wise to follow Nicole's orders, because Nicole wouldn't hesitate to dispose of him should he cause waves. Clark assures Gigi that he'll be a good boy while thinking to himself about how he's going to smash the spy's plans. The next strip begins with a major shift in the art, and I'll talk more about that after the synopsis. 
Gigi and Clark slip into the uh, plant by scaling a fence and forcing their way inside. Gigi retrieves the plants from a safe, but Clark quickly uses a Vulcan nerve pinch to render Gigi unconscious. Under the cover of darkness, Clark carries the man outside and, with a leap, hangs the unconscious crook from a flagpole. Clark, using what I'm calling a super shout, calls for the guards, and as they come a-running, Clark leaps down from the flagpole, striking an extremely flight-like pose on the way down. As Gigi revives, the guards lower him from the flagpole. Finding the stolen plant in his coat pocket, the guards quickly place Gigi under arrest. Elsewhere, Superman speeds through the night, soon arriving at Delmar Munitions Plant, where Nicole and a trio of goons have just knocked out the night watchman. Inside the factory, the spies pour gunpowder around piles of dynamite, intent on blowing the place sky high. But before they can light a match, Superman interrupts their party. Thinking he's the police, the spies fire a steady stream of bullets from, from a machine gun. Thankfully, they don't hit any of the large piles of explosives that surround them. However, they might have been better off if they had, because, much to Nicole's disbelief, Superman shrugs off the gunfire, charging at the spies. With a pair of socks to their jaws, Superman easily dispatches the goons, leading to a standoff with Nicole. Standing near a pile of gunpowder with a lighted match, Nicole warns Superman to stay back. Seeing he can't possibly reach Nicole before the match hits the ground, Superman inhales and blows a mighty gust at the spy. The gale blows a dust of gunpowder into Nicole's eyes, causing him to drop the match. The remaining gunpowder catches a flame, and it quickly races towards the explosives. Knowing time is short, Superman charges into action, plunging his fingers into the floor and ripping up a section of the cement floor, mere seconds before a massive explosion. As the flaming gunpowder fizzles out, Superman looks around and discovers that Nicole and his goons have made a run for it. Superman grabs a handful of grenades from one of the crates, hoping to make life a little more complicated for the crooks, as if fighting a Kryptonian who doesn't mind raising a little heck isn't enough trouble. But then he runs after the fleeing spies. Easily catching up to them, Superman begins lobbing the grenades on all sides of the car, causing it to come to a screeching halt. Superman descends beside the stopped car, crushing the doors to prevent Nicole and the other spies from escaping. He then rips off the car's wheels to prevent any escape whatsoever before leaping off. Soon the police arrive, attracted by the ruckus raised by the spies, to find the men trapped within the car, a gift courtesy of Superman. And that's where this portion of the story ends. We will wrap up this trilogy in the next episode focusing on the daily strips, which unfortunately will be a few episodes away, but I think it'll be worth the wait. So, the ending of this story is rather abrupt, which, since I know the story continues to the next set of strips that we're going to be looking at, you know, as all one big continuous story, I really can't hold that against it. And other than that, I don't really have too much to say about this story, which which is unfortunate because I liked it quite a bit, but that's kind of the nature of the game. This was quite a bit of fun, though. The villains' motivations were plausible. The means by which they went about it were solid. Maybe a little simplistic and a bit arduous, uh, realistically, but sound enough for comics in this era. And I liked that they tied Clark in with their activities by possibly framing him for the fake murder even if Siegel didn't do as much with it as I think he could have. We had Superman doing all his super feats, and I enjoyed seeing Clark play a bigger role in the story. I liked seeing him use his head to snare the villains by 
playing along and trying to catch them red-handed rather than just putting his union suit on and throwing them around. And don't get me wrong, that's really fun to see. And we saw it here with uh, Radoff, but sometimes I like to see him roll up his sleeves and actually use his brain to dismantle their operations rather than just, you know, punching something. And I also note Superman's reaction to Radoff's death. He's not exactly remorseful over the villain's demise, but it seemed a little softer than the he-got-what-he-deserved type of reactions that we've seen to this point. Concerning the art, that that is one place where there's definitely more to talk about this time. The first two-thirds of the story is excellent. It's a sizable step forward from the last few storylines we've looked at in the various media. Superman looks fantastic. Nicole, Gigi, and Radoff all look different without being, you know, cartoonish caricatures. Radoff looks especially sinister. But the line work on all the first two-thirds of the strip is excellent. There's more detail, uh, nice detail actually, in both the backgrounds as well as the figures. The first strip has a really cool panel of Clark entering the Ajax News Agency offices, and it's completely in silhouette. If Clark were in a storeroom changing to Superman, it would be a very iconic shot, and I really dig that. So that's the first two-thirds of the story. Then we get to strip 325, and there is an unmistakable shift in the art. And I think these next ten strips are by Paul Loretta on his own. Maybe Schuster doing faces, as it's been said he did, but I would say the bulk of the artwork here, I'm pretty sure, is Paul Loretta. Whoever it is, or whatever happened, the change in the artwork is striking. And sadly, I'm not as much of a fan of it. It's not that it's bad. Well, I guess there are some panels that aren't that great. Um, the anatomy of Superman is really off in several panels. Though he does strike a really great flying pose when he's jumping off the flagpole. But mostly, it's just a significantly different style, and I don't think the style really works well for Superman especially after becoming so accustomed to Schuster's style and knowing the styles that are coming, like those of Fred Ray and Leo Nowak and, you know, Ed Dabrotka. And when I do scans for the show notes, I'll be sure to include scans for, you know, from both sections so that you can compare. I do want to point out the most noteworthy change that occurs with the shift in the art, though, and that is Superman's S. The shield which, to this point, has been, for the most part, a small inverted triangle, grows a great deal in size, taking up a good part of Superman's chest, much like that of the modern Superman. The shape also becomes more pentagonal, uh, like the modern-day shield, or at least an extremely bloated triangle. It's hard to tell which they were exactly aiming for. In some panels it looks one way, and in other panels it looks another. The S itself is also slightly more stylized, though still closely resembling a standard letter S, and it's not, you know, it's not anywhere near as stylized as it will become. But still, it's another step forward in the evolution of the costume here, and a pretty major one at that. Don't get too used to it. This form of the shield won't spread consistently through the dailies and the Sundays and the comics immediately, but that should be pretty much a given to those who have been paying close attention to the art changes as we go on. Superman's trunks are also different in this portion, being more like actual gym trunks rather than speedos. And these are definitely not something that stick around, though a few artists have used that style in certain projects. 
Uh, Darwin Cook in DC, The New Frontier, comes to mind, as does the limited amount of stuff that Dave Bullock has done. So a few artists use it, but it isn't something that we're going to see a lot of. Um, how much we do see of it is something that I will be keeping an eye on, though, because I'm just not sure about that. If you want to see these things for yourself or read this story for yourself, this story was reprinted in the second volume of Dailies from Kitchen Sink, and it's the first story inside that volume. And as always, it is online for free at dccomics.com, and you will find a link to that in the show notes. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at two truefreaks.libson.com. Superman. A name known throughout the world to all ages, races, creeds, and colors. But what about those behind the shield? Men and women who for over 75 years have given us a legend. These are their stories. Dennis Neville is an artist, penciler, and inker who began working as an assistant to Joe Shuster as early as mid-1939. Neville initially worked for the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip before moving over to work on comic books in early 1940, working on stories for both the Superman Strip and Action Comics, as well as Slam Bradley in Detective Comics. Neville's art is noteworthy for being much more similar to Schuster's than other artists within the Schuster shop, particularly around the time he joined in 1939. Aside from Superman and other strips from the Schuster shop, in late 1939, Neville was artist on the earliest stories featuring another of the company's greatest Golden Age characters, Hawkman, a strip which was written by Gardner Fox. Hawkman was wealthy archaeologist Carter Hall. When Hall touched an ancient dagger, it awakened memories of a previous life when he had been Prince Khufu of Egypt. 
Using an experimental ninth metal belt in a wing-bearing harness, Hall becomes the superhero known as Hawkman. While Fox is widely and commonly credited with having created the character alone, Neville is likely the one who designed the costume and visual appearances of Hawkman, as well as Carter Hall, and that of Shiera Hall, who would later take on the mantle of Hawkgirl. It has been said that Neville's design of Hawkman's costume, or Fox's creation of the character as a whole, may have been inspired at least in part by the race of alien Hawkman in the Flash Gordon comic strip by Alex Raymond. However, no comments from Neville or Fox confirm this. Sources differ on whether Neville quit or was replaced on the Hawkman strip. Regardless, Neville only illustrated the first three stories for the feature, and the cover to Flash Comics No. 2, which featured Hawkman, before ceding the position to Sheldon Moldoff. From late 1940 through late 1941, Neville worked for Fox Publications, often credited under the pen name of Mark Howell. His work for Fox included strips such as Black Fury, Wing Turner, and Yank Wilson. Following his work for Fox, over the next couple of years, Neville did a handful of stories for various publishers, including Lev Gleason Publications, Quality Comics, and possibly even Timely Comics. In late 1944 or early 1945, Neville worked again for All-American Publications, which was now operating, at least for the time being, completely independent from DC, working on strips such as Red, White, and Blue and Sargon the Sorcerer. Neville seemingly ended his time with All-American in mid-1946, and no comic book credits following that have been found. However, Jerry Bales's Who's Who of American Comic Books credits him with work on the Rick O'Shea newspaper strip in 1977, which would have been possibly soon after the strip's creator, Stan Lind, departed following a near 30-year run. And unfortunately, that is, for the most part, all I was able to dig up on Dennis Neville, in the spotlight features, I like to include biographical details and information about their careers and lives beyond comic books, but with Neville, I wasn't able to dig up any such information. I realize he isn't necessarily a, a major name in comics, however, between working on quite a few Superman stories and being the original artist on the Hawkman strip, and likely designing the look of the character, he seems to me to be a pretty important figure. So, I'm putting out a call. If anyone has additional information on Dennis Neville or his career or where I might be able to track down such information, please send an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Someone out there has to know more. And actually, that applies to all the spotlight features on the show. While I strive to be thorough and accurate, I recognize that my sources are not unlimited. So, with any of the spotlight features that I have done or will do, if you have additional information or corrections, please send it my way. I will certainly give credit where it's due. I really want to bring attention to these folks that have crafted Superman over the years, and I definitely want accuracy when doing so. On a related note, since I have done a number of these so far, and will be doing more, I wanted an easy way to collect them all in one place. So, to that end, I have created a page on the site, greatcrypton.com spotlight, with links to all the spotlight features I have done so far, as well as photos of the various people where I could find them. So, be sure to drop by the site and give that a look, and give a listen to any of the previous spotlight features that you might have missed. Once again, the direct URL for that is greatcrypton.com spotlight.
Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Batgirl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Batgirl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. So that's it for this episode. Next episode, we'll be looking at the Superman stories. Yes, stories, plural, from Superman number four. And I will be joined by a special guest co-host, so I am looking forward to that. Until then, I invite you to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com, where you will find show notes for this and all episodes. As I mentioned, this episode's show notes will have several scans showing the art uh, from throughout the strips, so be sure to check those out to, to know what I'm talking about. Also at the website, you will find the RSS feed and the iTunes link, either of which can be used to subscribe to the show directly. If you wish to contact me, the site will also provide you with links to the show's Facebook and Twitter feeds. Connect with the show on one or both of those sites and get notes when I post a new episode or have other news to share. And you will also find the email link, which is thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com 
where you can send me your thoughts, comments, or questions directly for me to read live on the show. Or not. If you don't want it read, just let me know. But otherwise, I hope to be able to read it in a future episode. As I reminded at the top of the show, don't forget about the show's bi-weekly status for the rest of the September. We are closing in on the home stretch of it now, but I just want to keep the reminder out there since I know new listeners are joining with every episode. Don't forget to stop by the Superman homepage at supermanhomepage.com. Steve Yunus has been posting updates when I have new episodes out, so surf on over there. Or Do people still surf the internet, or is that too 1998? I'm unhip. Anyway, visit the Superman homepage for all the Superman content that you can handle. The show is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, where you will find many fantastic Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts, so be sure to check those out. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. I will talk to you later. Goodbye. You may or may not know, I am, as they say, very heavy into real estate. In order to make money in that game, you have to buy for a little and sell for a lot, right? Right. Right. So, problem. How to make the land more valuable between the time you buy it and the time you sell it. Now, this is California. The richest, most populous state in the Union. I don't need a geography lesson from you, Luthor. Oh, yes, of course, you've been there. I do forget you. Get around, don't you? <laughs> uh, where was I? California. Uh, California, right. Uh, the San Andreas Fault, maybe you've heard of it. Yes, it's the joining together of two landmasses. The fault line is unstable and shifting, which is why you get earthquakes in California from time to time. Wonderful. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Everything west of this line is the richest, most expensive real estate in the world. San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Everything on this side of the line is just hundreds and hundreds of miles of worthless desert land, which just so happens to be owned by Alex Luthor Incorporated. Now, call me foolish, call me irresponsible. It occurs to me that a 500 megaton bomb planted at just a proper point would, uh, would destroy most of California. Millions of innocent people would be killed. The West Coast as we know it would fall into the sea. Bye-bye, California. <laughs> Hello, new West Coast, my West Coast. Costa del Ex, Lutherville, Marina del Ex, Otisburg. Otisburg? Who's this monster? She's got her own place, man. Otisburg? It's a little bitty place. 
Otisburg? Okay, I just... 